Would you please join me in Mark chapter 10? It's been a little while. We've talked about elders. We have talked about the resurrection. We've even talked about chapter 11. But we're going back to chapter 10 and picking it up where we left off several weeks ago. Mark chapter 10. And today we're going to study together verses 17 to 22. But I'm going to read the paragraph before that and the paragraph after that and try to get the flow of it. Obviously, we'll be dealing with that next paragraph next week. But hopefully you've had a chance to find it. I'd like you to stand, please. And I'm going to read for us Mark 10, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to read to verse 31. Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit in eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, Sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are thankful to be able to read and study your word together. And we are asking again for your blessing on this time. That you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that you would show us ourselves today. 
that we would see our need of you, that we would turn to you, that we would find grace and help and comfort in you. Lord, if there is something you show us today, something that needs to change in our lives, I pray that you would give us the grace to humble ourselves and turn from it and turn to you. Lord, for the one who needs encouragement today, would you show that one the encouragement of your word, of your good news? We know that your word is sufficient. We know that it is alive and powerful, and we know that it will accomplish what you want it to today. So we ask that it would have free reign among us. Father, would you empower me by your Holy Spirit that you would use my weakness and that your strength would flow through that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I wanted to give you the greater context so that you could see what's going on. It was several weeks ago, but we talked about the fact that anyone who comes to Jesus, anyone who is going to enter the kingdom has to come to Jesus in a particular way. And the description here is as a child, as a little child coming in faith with nothing to offer, Most children don't come and say, Mom, Dad, I've been enjoying these snacks from this drawer, and I would like to pay you for them. Anybody, has that ever happened? No. And that's the picture that Jesus gave, that the child's going to come empty-handed. The child is going to receive whatever's given to him or her. And that's how all of us have to come in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus taught. And right on the heels of that, we enter the story of, we call him the rich young ruler. And what we see in him is that he's dependent on something different. He's dependent on his possessions. He's dependent on his position. He is dependent on his own self-righteousness. He can do it. He can check all the boxes. He's good to go. He just wants to know, is there something I'm overlooking? Am I missing something? And that's that's the next person. After Jesus has said, anyone who's going to come into the kingdom has to come as a child. This is our next case study. This is also the only example of anyone who came to Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. No one else came to Jesus and went away the same or even worse off than when he came. Only this man. So I think there's important truth for us to learn from this passage this morning. And I have three ideas. And this is going to come across probably as even more basic than normal, and I'm okay with that. Simple is good. Maybe it'll be memorable. But here are the three main ideas I want us to take with us throughout this week. First, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's really that simple. We're saved, how? By grace, through faith, and not just, oh, I believe, but faith in Christ, faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Second, we are not saved by works. Well, if we're saved by grace through faith, we're not saved by our works. Those things are mutually exclusive. And number three, we must love God first and foremost, put him above all else. And I believe all those, though basic, those three truths are very clear in our passage. I'd like for you to ask yourself three questions as we're going through this today. And I'd like you to Say these out loud with me. Three questions. First one, 
Read it out loud with me. Do I consider myself a good person? Second, do my possessions possess me? Third, do I love anyone or anything more than I love God? I'm not going to ask you to answer those questions out loud, but I'd like each of you to consider them this morning as we're studying this passage. Go back with me to verse 17, please. And there it says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? As he was going out, we've already set the stage. He's probably going out of the house where he had blessed the children, where he'd received the children. That's probably where he's going out. He's going out on the road. Where is he going? We already know he's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going there? He's going to die. He's been making his way all the way back, chapter 8 or so, Caesarea Philippi. He's been making his way slowly on his own timetable, on the Father's timetable, making his way to Jerusalem because he knows he's going to be crucified there and he's going to rise again the third day. He's told his disciples that twice already. Later in this chapter, we're going to see the same thing again. And one came running. Don't know his name. We know a little bit about him. But one came running. This one, we call him the rich young ruler. If you have headings in your Bible or a study Bible, it probably says the rich young ruler. This is in all three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as we put those together, we can piece together this man is rich. We know that from Luke 18.23. He is young. We know that from Matthew 19.20. Some have suggested that he may have been in his mid-30s. Mid-30s. Young. And then he's a ruler. What does that mean? We're not sure. Often that term was used as a ruler of a synagogue, but this might be a civic leader. To put it in modern terms, maybe more like a mayor or something. At any rate, he was a man of influence. Because he's described there in Luke 18, 18 as a ruler. So he is rich, he is young, he's a ruler. In our terminology, this guy was living the American dream. It was going well for him. He had prosperity. We're going to see that people would have thought of him as a good person, a good neighbor. He, he follows the rules. You'd like to know this guy. But he has some issues that we're going to see. This one came running and knelt before Jesus. You may be aware of this, but in the Middle East, it was uncommon, almost unheard of, for any man to run anywhere. That was considered undignified. So the fact that he ran is unusual. And then what did he do when he got there? He knelt down in front of Jesus. It was also unusual. People didn't kneel before rabbis. They respected them. I, I like this teacher. I want to follow this teacher. They, they could do various things, but normally they didn't kneel before them. And he comes, and he has a question. And honestly, I, I'm not going to do this. I think we could spend an entire sermon on this question. There's so much in his question of, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he begins by calling him good teacher. What does that tell us? That tells us that this one, this man, we call him the rich young ruler, thought that Jesus was good. Thought he was a good man. What does that tell me? That tells me that this man thought people can be good. We're going to find out as we go. He thought he was good. So he thinks, Jesus, you're a good teacher. You're a good man. I like you. I, I, whatever experience he'd had, he'd heard about Jesus, or maybe he'd heard Jesus teach, or maybe he'd seen miracles. I don't know. But he was on the impression... You're a good teacher. 
Why did he say that? Because he thought people could be good. The world around us believes that there are good people. Often a tragedy will strike. And the question everybody wants to know is, why do bad things happen to what? Good people. I don't know about you. (coughs) I've never heard anybody ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Because naturally we don't think of ourselves as bad people. We're good people, right? That's the mindset of the world around us. And that was the mindset of this man. And what does he ask? He starts off, respectfully enough, good teacher, what shall I do? Those are both important words, as short as they are. I do. What shall I do? He's looking for a religious deed that he can do in order to secure his eternal life. How do I guarantee that I'm going to make it? Again, the world around us, most unsaved people believe, I'm just hoping my good's going to outweigh my bad. I think, I think there's going to be a pay balance in heaven, and I'm hoping that my good deeds are going to be better than my bad deeds, and God's going to tell me, okay, you can stay. That's the mindset of the world around us. That when their works are added up, that the good's going to outweigh the bad. So he's looking for, what can I do to tip the scales in my favor? What can I do to make sure I'm going to get in? What must I do? He's looking for something religious. What pilgrimage do I need to go on? What staircase do I need to climb up on my knees? How many Hail Marys? How many candles do I need to light? How much do I need to give to the church? How often do I have to go to the church? How many... Whatever. Looking for something he can do to make sure he's going to get into heaven. We have I a second time, that pronoun. What shall I do? He's looking for something he can do so that I can inherit eternal life. He thought of eternal life as something that you can earn, something that you deserve instead of seeing it as a relationship. I appreciated what David Guzik wrote. He didn't want Jesus to be his savior. He wanted Jesus to... Jesus to show him the way to be his own savior. What do I have to do so that I can have eternal life? What do I need to do so I can save myself? That's what he's looking for. That's what he's expecting. He recognizes that there's something that he's missing. He wants to have eternal life, and and who doesn't? Just assume for the moment there's a heaven and there's a hell. Who would want to go to hell? Occasionally you'll talk to a person who feels that way or says he does, but most of us would want, to to, would want to go to heaven. How do I do that? How do I, what am I missing? What he didn't understand, this is in the words of David Jeremiah, is that salvation is about what God does for sinners rather than what they do for God. It's what God has done for me, not what I can do for him. We want to look at it in terms of don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Just substitute God for country. No, it doesn't work that way. God's not looking for anything from us other than humbling ourselves, turning from our sin, and turning in faith to him. 
I think this came up this past Tuesday night in our Hebrew study for the men. Any religion in the world can be put into one of two categories, either a do religion or a done religion. It's either what I have to do in order to be acceptable to God, in order to make it into heaven, or it's something that has been done for me. And obviously we believe that biblical Christianity, believing on Jesus, is something that has been done for me. And we've just been talking about it in this Easter season that the resurrection came after the crucifixion. Why did he die? In my place. He lived a perfect life, died in my place, rose again. Why? To accomplish salvation for me because I couldn't do it. There was nothing that I could do to save myself. And he did it all. It's not that he did 99% and I did 1%. It's not that he did 99.9% and I did 0.01%. I didn't do any of it. It is done. It is finished for you and for me. And my part is simply to take him at his word, to receive that free gift of salvation that he is offering. Someone said eternal life is not achieved, it is received as a gift. And that is absolutely right. He asks this question. He runs, he kneels down, he says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 18, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And that sounds weird to us, but it was a common, you would call it a proverb, it was a common saying in their time that no one is good except God. So Jesus is not saying that he's not good. Obviously, he is. He's not saying that he's not God, because he is. What he's saying is, do you realize what you're saying? He's asking the man, the unnamed person, you have a problem here. Because no one is truly good. No one is completely good except God. So are you prepared to say that I am God? I know it doesn't sound that way translated in English for us, but that's really the, the question that Jesus is getting at. Are you prepared to acknowledge me as God? Because if I'm not God, don't call me good. That's what Jesus is telling this man what's, what he's asking. He's putting it in the form of a question. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. So immediately he's confronting this man with a decision. In essence, he's saying either I'm not good or I am good and I'm God. Which is it going to be? Now, what does Jesus do with this man? He points him immediately to the law of Moses. Why? So that he would see himself as a sinner. Now, I borrowed this. I don't know whether you can see it, but it's just a little mirror I borrowed from my daughter. And I want you to pretend with me that this mirror is the law. So as I look at it, I can look at it and, okay, oh, my hair's a little bit messed up. Let me just see what I can do here. Ooh, I got a spot right there. Let me see what I can do with this mirror. Is that the way you all use a mirror? If you see somebody doing that, you're going to think that person has lost his mind. This is like the law, folks. The law will show us what's wrong. My hair is out of place. I'm, I, I'm dirty. I need a bath. But the mirror and the law cannot do anything to correct that. You with me? The law will show me I've missed it. I've missed the mark. I've sinned against God. 
But the law itself has no power, is what Paul wrote in Romans. There is no power in the law to make me do good, and there's no power in the law to save me, to reverse what I did that was wrong. All it can do is show me what's wrong. It's an x-ray, it's a diagnosis. It's a test. So Jesus rattles off some commandments. This is verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now I realize that most of you are very familiar with the commandments, but I have them up here so you can see them. And I have them arranged four and six, and I did that on purpose. The first four commandments primarily are related to our relationship with God. The last six are primarily related to our relationship with other people. Now, I just read for you what Jesus quoted to this guy. Were they from the first four or the last six? The last six. So his relationship to whom? Other people. And for what it's worth, Jesus didn't quote them in order either. But he quoted them. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, don't murder. And then honor your father and mother. And then there's this other one there. Did you notice that? Jesus said, do not defraud, which is not in that list. And it could be that this is something that Jesus is personalizing for this guy. Because it may be that he has been defrauding people. It may be a combination of eight and nine. Eight and nine are don't steal, don't bear false witness. Or it could be that this is another way in that time and culture to say, you shall not covet. Could be any of those things. But what is the point here? The point is, he's giving him stuff that other people can see whether or not he's doing. These are more external in my relationship with other people. And he, probably for his part, is thinking, no, I haven't murdered anybody. No, I haven't committed adultery. No, I haven't stolen anything. Doing pretty good here. Jesus brought up the commandments so that this man would see sin, that he would see his own sinful heart. Romans 3 is a great chapter to read if you want to see more about this. Paul wrote that there is no one righteous, no, not one. He, he wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this man answered in verse 20, and he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I haven't disobeyed any of those. Now, is that a true statement? It's not a true statement. What I can't tell you, because I don't know, the passage does not expand it enough for me to tell, is the man lying? He knows he has, in which case, guess what? He just broke number nine, right? Either he's lying because he knows he has broken these commandments, or... I don't know if this may even be worse. He's deceived. Remember? Jeremiah tells us that my heart is wicked. It is deceitful. It will lie to me. And we have a tendency to be blind to our own sin. And it's possible this man was deceived. He thought, I'm keeping all the commandments. I've done it all right. You ever talk to somebody like that? You ever talk to your kids who thought that? No, I haven't done anything wrong. So Jesus lays out some of the commandments, particularly the ones related to his fellow man, because we're going somewhere with this. And he says, you know the commandments. Here they are. 
And how does he respond? Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Just a couple quick things I'm going to point out there. First, it's no longer a good teacher. Either he's shying away from it because he doesn't want to get reprimanded again, or he's not so sure now. I don't know whether he's God. I don't know whether he's good. I'm just not going to say anything. So he says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. In other words, ever since my bar mitzvah, ever since I turned 13, I have kept all of the law. That's an unbelievable statement to me. But that's what he says. All these things I have kept from my youth. But we understand. We've read the Gospels. We understand what I learned in school was called the intensification of the law. That's what Jesus did as part of the Sermon on the Mount. So y'all are familiar with this in all likelihood. Matthew 5 gives us two specifics that go beyond just do not murder, do not commit adultery. Here's what it looks like. Anger or hatred is similar to murder. That's verses 21 and 22. Lust is similar to adultery, verses 27 and 28. What is Jesus saying? If you've done these things in your heart, it's the same as having done them according to the law. Please don't mishear me. I am not saying, oh, I had a lustful thought. I should just go act on it. That is not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that Jesus is taking the law and he is intensifying it for the purpose of showing them and us our hearts. That I'm not doing so well as I thought I was. Just because I haven't killed anybody doesn't mean that I'm not sinning. James wrote that if you keep the entire law but offend in one point, you break one rule. It's the same as if you've broken the entire thing. And Jesus has laid out these laws and he said, oh, I'm doing well. But he's looking at the external and God is looking at what? The heart. It is possible, it is not likely, it is possible that he has obeyed all of these external rules. It is not possible that he has had the heart attitude that he should have, that he has never sinned in his mind or his heart. So what would you expect? Here's this guy saying, I'm doing it all right. And you and I might think, all right, Jesus is about to lower the boom on this guy. Yeah, right. What about when you... And that's not what Jesus does. What does he do? We're at verse 21. Then Jesus looking at him. So first he looks at him. He makes eye contact with him. He's looking at him. And what does it say? Looking at him loved him. What did Jesus do? He had compassion on this man. He is God. He is all things holy. Anything we can imagine that's holy, that is who was standing in front of the rich young ruler. And in that moment, he did not offer condemnation, though he could have. He offered him compassion. He offered him love. He's going to offer him a solution in himself. So Jesus loved him, showed compassion on him. And what does love do? We know from Ephesians chapter 4 that love is going to tell the truth. We're supposed to be speaking the truth in love. So what does Jesus tell him? You lack one thing. There's one thing you're missing. I would imagine this guy was very eager to hear what it was because that's that's exactly what he came to ask, right? What am I missing? What do I lack so that I can inherit eternal life? This is it, guy. This is what you lack. I think the man 
must have known down deep that he was missing something because he came to Jesus in the first place. He came eagerly. He came and ran and bowed down in front of him. But I also think he was blind to the need that he had. So the one necessary thing he lacked, what do you think it was? Let's look at that table of the the Ten Commandments again, the table of the law. Which one do you think it is? What, What do you think he lacked? Oh, I'm getting different votes. I like that. You're thinking. I, I heard somebody say number 10, and I agree. I think he was probably greedy. I think he was probably covetous. But I'm going to go with the one that I think Jesus is pointing to most closely, and it's number one. What's the first commandment, folks? You shall have no other gods before me. This man was blind to the fact that his money, his prosperity, his material possessions were his God. And Jesus, it says, looking on him, loved him and said, this is the one thing you're missing. This is the one thing you lack. This is what you need. Pay attention. And he doesn't come right out and say, you broke the first commandment. But he's going to point it out. He's going to give him a test, if you will. What does he say? Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. We need to understand a couple things. This is the only person Jesus told that to. It's not that in order to follow me, in order to be my disciple, you must sell everything and give it to the poor. God may lead you to do that. We need to be willing to do that. But generally speaking, that's not it. That's not the way to have eternal life. It's not that I need to give everything I have, liquidate my assets, and give it all away. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that this man, he's getting to the heart of the issue, the heart of the problem in this man's heart is that he loved his stuff more than he loved his neighbor. If I have any gods ahead of the one true God, I'm not going to love my neighbor like I love myself. Do you remember? It comes later in the Gospel of Mark and in the other Gospels as well. What is the greatest commandment? That you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first, the greatest commandment. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. I cannot begin to do these things on the second side of this table until God is God in my life. And that was this guy's problem. His money was his idol, and he didn't see it. His material possessions were more important to him than his neighbor. So he could not fulfill the law to love his neighbor as himself. What is Jesus telling him? Sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. What is that? Someone described it as salvation and all its benefits. It's eternal gain. Randy Alcorn said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's the idea that by, another part in the Gospels, by being rich toward God, by not hanging on to the material possessions, but willingly, freely sharing them with other people in need, with other believers, with missionaries, that I'm not going to hold tightly to what this world has to offer because I want to send it on ahead. I want to have eternal treasure. So he says, Sell what you have, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven, and take up your cross. Does that sound familiar? Have we seen that in Mark before? Yes, we have. 
Back in chapter 8, a quick review, the cross meant execution. The person being executed by Rome had to carry his cross with him. That's what he means by take up the cross. Where's Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem, ultimately, to be crucified. So he's saying, take up your cross and follow me. Be willing to take up the shame and suffering that comes with being associated with me. That's what he's challenging this guy to do. Come, follow me. Be one of my disciples. Liquidate your assets. Give it to the poor. Follow me. That's what treasure in heaven is going to look like. That's what eternal life is going to look like. Not that he's going to earn it by doing good works, but that if he's willing to do that, he's showing that God is God, that Jesus is good and God, and that he's going to find eternal life in the Son. In the Gospel of John, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. There is no religious act that I can do to make myself acceptable to God or purchase or earn or guarantee eternal life. It's not there. I have to find it in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So a moment ago, we might have thought, oh, Jesus is going to lower the boom on him. He's going to let him have it. And he didn't. So now we read this. He looked on him. He loved him. He told him what he needed to do. And we would expect this man who was so eager, he came and he ran and he knelt down and he said, good teacher, what do I need to do so that I can inherit eternal life? And you would expect that he would do it. Because we just saw that Jesus looked on him and loved him. The problem is, verse 22 tells us that he loved his money. Jesus loved him, but he loved his money. And it's a tremendously sad verse, 22. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. When it says he went away sorrowful, this word that Mark is using here is similar to It is the same word that Matthew used to describe a sky becoming dark. We understand this around here when a storm is rolling in and the sky keeps getting darker and darker. That's describing this guy's face. His countenance is falling. It's getting darker. It's getting gloomier. And it says that he went away grieved. He went away sorrowful. Why? He came because he thought he was going to get guarantee of eternal life. That he would do whatever Jesus told him to do. And when, when the rubber met the road, he wasn't willing to do it. The price was too high. This is similar to something Jesus said back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 36 and 37. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You cannot buy happiness and you cannot buy salvation. Doesn't matter how much money you have. You can be a multi-billionaire. You can be a trillionaire. You can't buy salvation. It's not for sale. The only transaction that allows for our salvation is the one that Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He paid the price in order to offer us a free gift. I 
I don't know for sure whether this is the only time it happened, but it's the only time in the Gospels that it's recorded that someone was invited personally to follow Christ, and he didn't. He went away. He went away sorrowful. He went away grieved, but he went away, and he didn't follow Christ. He did not become a disciple in spite of the invitation. Jesus had exposed the barrier, the wall, that was preventing this man from entering the kingdom. Because for him, money was his pride. It was his accomplishment. It was his self-assurance. He could rely on himself to get it done. To accomplish what he wanted to. Are there any barriers that are keeping you from eternal life? Now the moral of the story, let's not get this wrong, folks. The moral of the story is not rich people are bad. That's not what this passage says. It's not what any passage says. There are examples in Scripture of people who were godly people and the Lord blessed them materially. Think of Abraham. Think of Job. New Testament. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. Think of Barnabas. There are people who had great possessions and loved God entirely and loved God with those possessions. So that's not the point. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So what matters is not the wealth, it's the attitude. Do the possessions possess me? Am I too caught up in this world and the material aspects of it? The attitude I have toward my possessions is going to determine what I do with them. And where those possessions lie in my priorities, are they more important than God? And that's an idol. I've disobeyed the first commandment. Let's make it more personal. If Jesus asked you to give up your house or your car or your bank account, or your retirement account, or your position at work, or the promotion you just got, or your influence. Could you do it? Would you do it? And I'm not saying he's asking that of you, but it's a really good test to ask ourselves. Because that will reveal our hearts. Are we more in love with things, or are we more in love with God? There's three main ideas. We're going to come back to them and close. First, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And you can see there I have Ephesians 2.8. I know a lot of you know that verse. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Number two, we are not saved by works. The next verse says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not anything I can do. Salvation is not something I can earn or buy. A similar verse is Titus 3, 5, which starts off, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Third, we must love God first and foremost. And we haven't gotten there yet in our study in Mark, but we will. 
Mark 12, 30 says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Are you obeying that commandment, the great commandment? Nothing ahead of God? There's three questions from the beginning. I'm going to ask you to say them out loud again. I really want you to ask yourself this this morning. Do I consider myself a good person? Do my possessions possess me? Do I love anyone or anything more than I love God? There could be somebody watching online, somebody who's here in the room, and you're going to go away sorrowful today. Because there's something in your heart, there's something in your life that is ahead of God. There's something preventing you from coming to Christ. It could be money, it could be power, it could be a relationship with somebody else, it could be an addiction. Whatever it is, give it up. It is worth whatever it may cost you to be able to come to God through Christ and have eternal life. Believers, is God first in your life? How would I know that? These kind of diagnostic questions. What does your time look like? If you were to look at your schedule, I know we have responsibilities. Most of us work. There are things that we have to do. But as you look at your schedule, and especially the free time, where does your time go? Is anything in that list an idol? We have responsibilities with our money. The money that you get to decide where it goes, where does it go? That could reveal an idol. Is there anything or anyone that has taken God's place in our lives? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If the Holy Spirit has shown you something specific that you need to do in response to his word today, I would urge you, I would beg you, do it. Obey him. If it means stopping doing something you've been doing, stop it. If it means start doing something that you haven't been doing or haven't been doing in a while, start it. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't claim to know what's going on in your heart. but I pray that you would respond in a way that is obedient to the Holy Spirit. If there's anyone here, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Receive the gift of salvation. Let today be your day. Our Father, we pray that you would meet the needs of the hearts represented here, that we would be careful to do what you've shown us from your word this morning that we would understand that nothing we can do is going to save us, but that we can come to you and only you for salvation. Lord, if there's someone who needs to do that today, may today be the day of salvation for that one. Continue to do your good work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.